Well, good morning. If you are new or visiting, my name is Alice Walker, and I'm filling in for Fritz and Murray as they're both away this week. Um, I had texted t- Tony earlier this week about a, a nightmare that I had. Uh, and in this nightmare, I showed up an hour late to service, and I came up here and realized I didn't have any shoes on. And uh, Tony said that he would make sure that I had shoes on, so I appreciate that. But while Fritz and Murray are away, uh, we have the privilege of, le- privilege of leading you this morning. Um, and by way of introduction, uh, I, again, is, my name is Ellis Walker. I am a campus associate with the uh, campus ministry arm of our denomination here at University of Louisville. It's called Reform, Uni- uh, Reform University Fellowship. And Fritz, or Tony here, he's um, on staff doing an internship, and he too is seeking ordination. Uh, so this is the second year in a row that I've been asked to fill in the week after Christmas. And let me tell you, it is a weird week. Uh, every day is both the longest and the shortest day of our lives. And I have no idea what day of the week it is. And any problem, any task, any project that I had wanted to get done, well, that was a problem for a future me, the 2024 version of myself. But this week also gives us some time to reflect and prepare for the year ahead. And it's this future orientation that I want to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Now, this, this is a long chapter, and I do plan on reading most of it, but I, I think it's good for God's people here to read long portions of Scripture and have to focus. And so, Jeremiah chapter 32, uh, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mahasiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Verse 16, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. 
O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to your fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to this city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy this field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? I jump down to verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land in which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given to the hand of Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money. Indeed shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, the cities of the Shephelah, and the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. <clears throat> so I read recently that there was a minor league baseball card depicting the late, great Babe Ruth that recently sold for $7.2 million. Now, Babe Ruth is one of the greatest baseball players of all time, and this card is an exceedingly rare baseball card. Um, but I doubt that the original buyer had any idea that this card would be one day worth $7 million. And now, I'm not a, I'm not a baseball card collector, although maybe I should be. Um, but when you consider baseball cards or investments, it's worth asking the question, what is a good investment? What is a good investment? Many of us are familiar with investments. If you contribute to a workplace 401k, then you are investing in a mixture of stocks and bonds. Your home is an investment. Both the stock market and property have historically been proven to be good investments. But we know that not all investments are good investments. And you may remember uh, that mythical place called Blockbuster or that 90s craze of T.Y. Beanie Babies, um, those turned out to not be very good investments. And so what's needed for an investment to be a good investment, I would argue, is that you need uh, the requirement of a stable environment. That's why investing in the U.S. stock market or investing in property is safe, because we have here in this country the stability that's needed. 
But consider how strong our capitalistic economy is and the security that we can afford through military strength and compare that to war-torn countries or de destabilized economies. Right now, no one's going rushing in to invest in Ukraine or buy land in Gaza. So, of course, if we knew the future and had a guarantee that certain investments that we could buy today would bring value in the future, then we would certainly dictate how we would invest, right? But we couldn't possibly have a promise of a future, could we? And that brings us to Jeremiah chapter 32, where we need to ask the question, were the conditions right for Jeremiah to invest in property? So what is going on with Judah, Jerusalem, and Jeremiah? Well, verses 1 through 5 set the stage and give us details of the situation. Um, Israel was a united kingdom under the leadership and the reign of King David. But afterward, it split into two, and you, you had what was the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And as Jeremiah is writing this passage in this in 588 BC, the northern kingdom had ceased to exist for about 170 or 130 years. Now, Judah and Jerusalem right now are next on the chopping block. They are surrounded by the Babylonian armies, and they are in the middle of a long siege. And so while things are bleak, and while Jerusalem is bound within its own walls, Jeremiah is bound within the palace walls. And the reason why this is the case is because Jeremiah is under house arrest for preaching consistently the same message over and over and over. What Jeremiah originally preached was a message of repentance. And he was accusing Judah of breaking covenant with God. And in preaching this message of repentance and a promise in God's blessing, should they turn, he's saying, if you repent and turn to God, you will receive blessing. But should you continue in your unrepentant ways, you will be led to God's judgment. But Judah did not repent, and now Jeremiah's message shifts from one of repentance to one of judgment. No longer was the destruction of Jerusalem just a possibility. It was now a certainty. It was going to be the reality. It was imminent, and it was going to happen. And this destruction was God's judgment on his wayward people. And it was a message that, for obvious reasons, King Zedekiah could not have out there with the people. Hence why Jeremiah's under house arrest. It's in this less than ideal situation that the word from God comes to Jeremiah about an investment opportunity. God informs Jeremiah that his cousin, Hanamel, has, would approach him with an opportunity to buy some land at Anathoth. Now, this land is located currently outside the city walls of Jerusalem in territory that's currently occupied by the Babylonian army. So not only is Jeremiah under house arrest, but his property that he's supposed to buy is now outside the walls of Jerusalem and is hosting the very armies that are about to raise the city. Now, Hanamel is appealing to Jeremiah through this rite of redemption. It's, this rite of redemption is found in Leviticus 25. You may remember it from the story of Ruth and Boaz. Essentially, someone who owns land has the right to sell it to a family member within the family in order for it to stay in the family. Now, we don't know all the details here, but I can imagine that Jeremiah was not the first person that Hanamel asked. But where his other family members wisely passed on this opportunity, Jeremiah bit, and he decides to buy this land. And we get a glimpse of a 6th century real estate transaction here in verses 9 through 15. Jeremiah hands over some silver, 
He uh, records the purchase on two different copies, one that's public and available for everyone to see, and then one that's sealed away, only to be referenced in matters of dispute. They're both put into earthenware vessels. But notice, what I want you to notice is how public these actions are. Even though Jeremiah is under house arrest, there is careful deliberation to record all that's happening right here for all to see. And so is this transaction one that's visible for everyone to see? Is it foolish or is it wise? Because everything indicates that this is a very foolish decision. Why buy property that will utterly be useless once the armies of Babylon destroy Jerusalem? But God has words in verse 15 that suggest that what's foolish to everyone else is actually a wise investment. Look at verse 15 here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. God is publicly proclaiming, look, I know things look really bad right now. In fact, I'm about to destroy the city and send a remnant into exile. And yet there will be a day where this land will be yours and transactions will resume. Now, if God is going to bring judgment and destruction on his people because of their wicked and unrepentant hearts, what will change once God brings his people back? Will the same sin problem remain, or will God have to do something new and better? And it's this tension between what Jeremiah can see, the armies outside the walls, the destruction that's coming, and what's being promised that Jeremiah doesn't quite understand. So before we look at this, this promise from God, I want to point out a couple of observations about Jeremiah. What compels Jeremiah to act in obedience? What compels Jeremiah to act in obedience? The first reason is that God told him to. It should be reason enough, but in reality, for many of us, that's just not good enough. We seem to think that we can add or take away from God what God has commanded, especially if we think what he's commanded is foolish. And there's a lot, there seems to be a lot of foolish things in God's word. But even if it seems foolish, it's always a good thing. It's always a good thing to do what God says in his word. Do you believe the words of Jesus in John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Do you believe this? We also see in Jeremiah a trust in God's promise that leads to obedience. Despite all that Jeremiah can see right now outside the city walls, this is obvious to everyone. There's destruction coming, arrows are whizzing by. Jeremiah purchases this land as an act of faith. Jeremiah was able to see through his current circumstances into, into a better future, a future that God had promised. And Jeremiah, he can, he can operate from a here and now orientation. In doing so, he probably makes what seems to be wiser decisions to everyone else. Or he can operate with a future orientation that might put him at odds with everyone else. And it's, this, is, this is one of the hardest things to do as a Christian, isn't it? It's, it's so easy to be short-sighted. It's so easy to be forgetful, to think that money in the bank, healthy bodies, fulfilling hobbies are all that matter. But to have a future orientation likely means that we'll not be in lockstep with, lockstep with everyone else it likely means that we will be out of step with this world. And so where Jeremiah makes a decision and clings to the future, my question for you, friend, is, is that the same? Is that the nature of your faith? What is the nature of your faith? Is it predicated on what you can see in the here and now, what you can make sense of and understand, or is your faith future-oriented? 
one that clings to God's promises. And so we see in Jeremiah's obedience that he is being obedient, but that doesn't mean it was easy for him or that he understood exactly what was happening. When, when we first purchased our house a couple years ago, uh, I had major buyer's remorse. Uh, I didn't understand the market. I didn't understand what we were doing. This was all new to me, and I felt terrible afterwards. And I can imagine that Jeremiah, after everything that just happened, is starting to have his doubts. And so what does he do? Jeremiah prays. It's not just praying, but it's how he prays that is noteworthy. I can tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't abandon his theology. Read with me starting in verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man. Verse 21, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. This prayer is not floating out there unattached. It is anchored to God's word. It is anchored to who God is, and it's anchored to all that God has done. Jeremiah is recounting his theology back to God in his prayer. And so, my question for you is, is, do you struggle to pray? I feel like I don't even have to ask that question, right? It's probably one of the top two New Year's resolutions, is you want to be a fit prayer warrior. And when you're stuck at a crossroads with a decision, or trying to see the goodness of God in your suffering, or burdened by the guilt of your sin, don't abandon your theology in your prayers. Stay close to God's word. Anchor your cries to who God is, and what he's done. So back, back to this tension that Jeremiah recognizes here. It's this tension between judgment and exile now, when I can see it, and the promise of future restoration and grace that I can't really see at this moment. How will regard God restore his people? What's to say that judgment and exile won't happen again? And how is sin in the heart of God's people to be dealt with? God tells Jeremiah in verse 27 that nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for God. It is God himself that will make sense of all this. And he will do it, and how he will do that is found in verse 37. Read with me in verse 37. Behold, I will gather from all the countries to which I drove them, in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. God is going to make a new covenant and this covenant is an everlasting covenant. Now, if this new covenant is to be everlasting, then both parties, both God and his people, need to have undivided hearts, hearts that are fully devoted to one another. And because God is who he is and we are who we are, we know that the problem in this equation is not God, it's us. We have remaining sin in our hearts, and that's what sin does. It divides the heart and pulls our devotion and worship away from God. At the very moment when Israel, when God was making a covenant relationship with Israel, 
Moses descends from the mountain, and what is Israel doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. The entire history of the Old Testament is a history of God's people forgetting about what God has done, turning from him, and worshiping other gods. And so what good is this new covenant if it doesn't address the problem of the old? And when the Bible speaks of the old covenant, it's primarily referring to that covenant made between God and Israel under the leadership of Moses. If you've been with us this past semester during adult Sunday school, John has been teaching about the covenants. And we know that there's a one overarching covenant of grace, but within that covenant there are smaller covenants, the covenant, old covenant and the new covenant. The problem here with the old covenant is not the law. Rather, it was sin in the heart of God's people. And again, the history of Israel is the history of Israel is his people coming to terms with the sin in their own hearts. It's the entire reason why God is about to do what he's about to do to Jerusalem. Read verse 23 here. Um, and they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. And so this new promised covenant is not superior in that there is no law. It's superior, rather, because it addresses the problem the old covenant could not. In addressing sin within the heart of God's people, it will create in us devoted hearts. And thus, therefore, we would have an everlasting covenant. And this new covenant promise in Jeremiah 32 is part of a larger section of Jeremiah. It's called the Book of Consolation. It's chapters 30 through 33. You may recall that there is a well-known new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. It's a, a text that Baptists and Presbyterians love to debate about. But look with me at verse 14 in chapter 33, just one chapter over. Verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne or the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So this righteous branch, this priest king, is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 that God's promises find their yes and amen in him. And to be sure, there, there is a partial fulfillment here. Um, there is a remnant that returns to the land about 70 years after Jerusalem is uh, destroyed. But that is a, a type of a fuller, truer fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But this new fulfillment, this new covenant, it doesn't happen all at once. And that's, that should be rather obvious, right? If just by looking at ourselves, we have remaining sin in our lives that are not currently in the new heavens and the new earth. But this inbreaking of the new covenant is inaugurated, or it begins with the birth of Jesus Christ. It is through his perfect obedience to the law and his shed blood that ushers in this new covenant. And just as important as his death is Jesus' resurrection, because it proves that God is committed to his promise. It's after the resurrection, according to Luke and Acts, that Christ and Jesus is the giver of the Spirit. And it's this spirit that testifies to God's people that they are indeed God's people and that their future is secure. It's this spirit that begins the renovating work of making God's people a clean people with devoted hearts. This is Ezekiel. And so if God is to make a new covenant, and the way he does that is through the work 
of his son, Jesus Christ, and the application of the Spirit, what does that mean for you? If you are united to Christ in faith, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in unity of life, then all of Christ is yours, all of him, including his blessings. This is your new reality. You are a new creation, and the new covenant blessings are your blessings. You are God's people. But once you look around at the here and the now, you realize that things aren't quite there yet. You wake up, and your bones hurt. Cancer still exists. Accidents happen. And some days, you're your own worst enemy. So you have to ask yourself, in what stage of history are we in? What age are we in? Because this new covenant works itself out in between two great redemptive events, the two great R's of history, the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And he, Christ inaugurates or begins this new age in his life, death, and resurrection, and it will consummate or end this new age at his return. And so think about this for a second. You have more in common with the saints of the New Testament than you do with your lost neighbor down the street. Peter, Barnabas, Dorcas, Phoebe, you have so much in common with them because you're both new saints, new creations in the same era of redemptive history awaiting the return of Christ. And I bring this full circle. While in this age, we are not left without resources. We are not left without blessings. The blessings of this age are primarily the obedience that comes from a renovated heart. We're not called to sit on our hands and not do anything. And the future reality of Christ's return reaches back into your here and now and works itself out in you works itself out in your obedience, which is anchored by that future reality. And so this obedience is not a burden like it is in the old. It's a blessing in the new. Your obedience is a blessing in the new. Our, our obedience is not for merit. Don't get that wrong. And obedience is, but obedience flows from a circumcised heart. And so I, I don't know, well, Christ, God's word has specific commands and principles of how to obey him. But I don't know how that looks for you specifically for today or 2024. There's a great deal of discernment, a great deal of prayer and walking with the Spirit on knowing what to do. Now, I don't think that you're supposed to go buy land from your cousin, but you need to ask yourself, is it a bad investment to pray for that spouse that you have who is just consistently sinning against you and is unrepentant? Is it a bad investment to pray for your wayward child who's not walking with the Lord? is you need to ask, is it foolish to raise your children in such a way that they will likely not ever fit in with this culture? They will be different, to have family devotions, to keep them from certain things, to instill in them certain values. Is it pointless to invest so much time in this local church, to invite new people into your home, to visit those who can't leave the church or their home, the elderly? Is it pointless to invest tithe faithfully in this church, to serve this church, to teach children Sunday school? And I think the answer, based on what we've been seeing, is, is a resounding no. It is not a bad investment. It is not foolish, and it is not pointless, because God's full and future promises have begun working themselves out on you today to ensure that your obedience today is always a good investment. Your obedience today is always a good investment. 
And so I want to, I want to end this sermon where all of God's people end, and that's in Revelation 21. Uh, Brian, you mentioned this in your prayer. This is where we're all ending. In verse 21, or sorry, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nothing, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word and your spirit this morning and just instill in us the full implications of this text, Lord. This future orientation that we have, this assurance that we have, that you are working throughout history to bring a people to yourself, and that this covenant that you've made with us is an everlasting covenant. And this covenant and the work you're doing in our hearts, Lord, it guarantees that our obedience today, our obedience over this next year, is not foolish, it's not a waste of time, Lord, but it is always a good investment, Lord. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.